Sup Freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. Sat down with Matt Hill from Start Nine Labs a couple weeks ago at this point. Uh, had a great conversation about the hardware that they're building, the software that they're building, more importantly, uh, self-sovereign computing servers, Bitcoin nodes, communication, Tor access in your home. They're working on a pretty cool roadmap, building some dope hardware. Uh, and and the reason behind it is an important one. We either go down the digital panopticon route, route, road, or we get self-sovereignty in the digital age. People like Start9 Labs are fighting for that. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. This episode brought to you by good friends at the motherfucking K-Ship. I think you guys have heard this read before. We got the Cash App. Help me stack sats, send sats, receive sats, and sell sats, if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 because sats are the standard. 100 million sats per one Bitcoin. There's a bunch of people out there right now really getting confused. We're like, oh, Bitcoin is not scarce because you can divide it into 100 million units known as Satoshis or sats. Francis Coppola, Amy Castor, uh, that dude from the Zeitgeist movie. They think that this makes it so Bitcoin isn't scarce. The fact that you can get it down to 100 million units, that just makes it more granular, not less scarce. If you cut a pizza into 100 million pieces, does that feed the whole world? I don't think so. So you can buy sats. You can buy these fraction, these granular fractions of a Bitcoin that we like to call sats via the Cash App. You can set it and forget it. You can DCA into sats uh, by daily, weekly, bi-weekly, so you don't have to think about it. It's a good strategy, just setting it and forgetting it, and just stacking sats in the background constantly. And you wake up one day, you're like, oh, look how many sats I have. Oh, look how many much these sats are worth. Cash App is letting you do this. On top of that, they have their, um, their, their Bitcoin Boost. Now, if you go use the Boost card wherever Visa is accepted and you have your Bitcoin Boost initiated, you're going to get sats back on that purchase. Incredible stuff. You can be your bank account, the Cash App can. It's got an account number, routing number, and get your paychecks direct deposited into the app and stack sats right away. So go check all this out. Download the Cash App. Use the code stacking sats. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Across. That's Owls Across. Enjoy this episode with Matt. I know I certainly did. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a very special day, December 16th, 2020. It's my guest birthday, Matt Hill, CEO of Start9 Labs. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. Thanks for the Thanks birthday for... wishes. Well, uh, I'm sorry if I'm doxing you live on air here. That's okay. <laughs> that, Everyone has uncouth? birthdays. Yeah, This is true. Uh, it's your birthday. We just hit an all-time high. Uh, 10-year anniversary of Slush Pool mining their first block, starting the mining pool era. And we're going to talk about self-sovereignty, uh, particularly self-sovereign hardware, which is what Start9 Labs is building uh, with your embassy suite. Um, but before we get into the specifics of what embassy is and why you guys are doing it, let's learn a little bit about yourself. Like, How did you find yourself building this particular product? What, what drove you to um, create... St- start nine labs and and try to enable people with self-sovereign software and hardware? Um, Well, yeah, I guess there's, there's kind of a a long and a short story there. Um, So I'll give you the middle one. Uh, You know, I, as an individual have always been um, very passionate about individual rights, uh, individual freedom, sovereignty in general. And, um, that has expressed itself in different ways over the years. 
from campaigning for Ron Paul in 2012 um, to writing an app for iOS and Android that enables streamlined shift trading for uh, hourly workers such that they can more easily pick up and get out of shifts and increase freedom in their lives sort of the do-it-yourself Uber platform um, to what I'm doing now, which is by far the, the biggest push uh, towards individual rights and freedom I've ever been a part of. Uh, and I'm doing this one with uh, three partners who are equally passionate um, and also extremely gifted. And so this one uh, has been quite a ride so far. It's only about a year old, but um, we are absolutely out to empower individuals um, to protect their data and communications online. And we mean that fully, uh, that the individual is in total control. Um, our philosophy is no trust, no third parties. Um, those are almost impossible to eliminate, but you can minimize them uh, to a degree that was previously impossible uh, using consumer technology. So we are pushing the boundary of consumer technology to put the individual in total control of their information, uh, even online. Yeah, and it's a topic that is not talked enough not talked about enough in the mainstream, but it's something that as Bitcoiners has become as a Bitcoiner, I won't speak for all Bitcoiners as a Bitcoiner, it has become something that's on the top of my mind more and more, uh, running hardware at home, not keeping things on other people's servers. And it's something that I didn't really think about until I had to protect my private keys essentially and pull data from, from a node to, to verify that I'm actually, sending Bitcoin to the addresses that I possess. And so we're at this weird part in human history, particularly with the internet, with our relationship with the internet, where it seems that we have uh, maybe messed up the design of the internet first right way around, particularly uh, allowing uh, or allocating so much trust to, to third parties, whether it be Amazon, Google, Apple. Um, So do you think, considering how far gone things are from a centralization standpoint on the web that we can uh, claw back some, some sovereignty on the internet, considering how uh, vast and how, uh, how these centralized technologies have permeated society to such a degree. Um, Short answer is yes. There's some nuance there. Um, You know, Bitcoin is, often referred to as a rabbit hole, um, sort of a gateway drug. Uh, And it's most often used in that context as a gateway to money, as an understanding of money. A lot of people said, I never really got money before Bitcoin. And now I feel like an economist, right? Like you, you really go down this rabbit hole and you learn how economic systems work and the dynamics of power and how money is involved. Um, But Bitcoin is increasingly becoming a gateway drug to the the concept of decentralized information systems uh, in general, outside of the context of money, right? And outside of smart contracts too, like just this idea that third party custodians and trust is sort of the heart of the issues that we face. Um, And nobody has really set out to solve those things. Um, The focus has been on money, has been, you know, kind of at the uh, protocol and application layers of communications infrastructure, um, but the base layer remains entirely centralized uh, and under the control of very few people in this world. And um, that's a big fish to fry. It's that's not an easy thing to take on. Um, and that is what we're taking on. Um, and we're very optimistic. Um, I wouldn't say that we think the internet can be fixed or saved but we believe that there is an alternative um, that it may reuse parts of what we currently refer to as the internet, but it is actually kind of a new, um, new system altogether um, that can, you know, hijack or reuse parts of the old system, but we're not out to patch the, the current internet by, you know, adding more security measures or more regulations or even more encryption layers on top of the internet. We are really out to attack one of the most base layers and eventually the most base layer of communications infrastructure on earth. 
Um, and that inherently involves hardware. Uh, you can't have a truly decentralized system with the hardware being centralized. Um, Bitcoin itself uh, running on cloud infrastructure might be a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer protocol and network, but it is, um, you know, a flip of a switch can turn that thing off or at least wound it severely. And I don't think enough people think about that vulnerability. Um, it is increasing. Like I said, Bitcoin is increasingly become known as a rabbit hole for this. Um, and we're doing, uh, I think, some to help that recognition come about. I think that Start9 is helping people to, with some light bulb moments to go, oh, Bitcoin can be applied generally. The, con you know, the, the uh, approach to Bitcoin can be applied generally to, to communications technology. Yes. And it comes down to UX though, right? At the end of the day, like a lot of people yeah. <laughs> will take the easier path um, and highlighting the, the cost of that easier path is not yeah. always easy uh, per se. So why would you, or how would you explain to somebody why they should care about this? And even though it may be uh, a bit of a path with a, a few more, steps that you need to take and more responsibility you need to take on um why is it worth it in your mind yeah i mean as as with most new and technologies that offer any value um your initial market is going to be small it's going to be limited to the people who are willing to put up with pain and discomfort and inconvenience and even cost uh, monetary to gain the benefits of that new technology we saw this with bitcoin in the early days um very difficult to run and participate in. And that is becoming more and more accessible, unfortunately, through trust and third parties custodians in a lot of instances, but um, also to do it in a sovereign way. Um, so for us, we are at a very early stage right now in our product um, and technology such that it is limited in uh, market. Um, we do not think we are as limited as uh, some of the early internet infrastructure and computing technology was, nor uh, nor Bitcoin. Um, our product is actually quite accessible, relatively speaking. Um, we have tested it on a significant number of entirely non-technical people who have been able to get up and running in a very reasonable time, uh, less than 10 minutes, and begin using this product in the way that it is designed to be used without compromise um, in, in under 10, 20 minutes. Um, and that is a testament to the UX that we have produced thus far. But our accessible market grows in direct proportion to the convenience and usability of the product, the cost in terms of time, effort, uh, and expertise. The lower we can get those, the more uh, accessible our product becomes and the larger our market becomes. Um, at scale, our market is everyone who uses a computer. Um, we are a computer company. We are too often thought of as a Bitcoin node company uh, or a Bitcoin company in general. Bitcoin is important and is absolutely central to our product offering, our ecosystem, uh, the things that you can do on this new type of computer. But Start9 Labs is a computer company and we are building a novel, uh, previously um, inaccessible type of computer called a server, making it available to individuals. Um, we originally thought about calling it a shelf top computer to make it a little bit more uh, accessible and occupy the right space in the brain. Um, when you say server, people think about server racks and farms and businesses and basements with glowing lights. Um, this is really just a tiny little computer that sh sits on your shelf. And um, it's a different kind of computer that you, you know, are not familiar with in that it doesn't have a screen and it doesn't have a keyboard. There's no interface. Uh, with this computer. It sits quietly on your shelf and you interface with it, you interact with it from anywhere in the world in total anonymous, trustless privacy uh, from your phone or your laptop or your desktop from another computer. Uh, it's like a portal to the computer that's sitting in your home, but it doesn't flow through any third parties. And that's yeah. something everyone can use. Right. And it's, and again, like I, I love that you pointed out already because I don't have to that it's not just a Bitcoin node it's much more than that like the yeah. the stack of software that comes in an embassy computer is is pretty robust and 
and something that's uh, much needed in, in the, the out of the box product offering is pretty huge. Like bar burn after reading. That's our um, newest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, file browser. You're going to have all the lightning stuff you need cups, which is a peer to peer and some messaging system. Let's yeah. Let's jump into the hardware and the computer and yeah. the, the software that comes, comes on it. Like how that's cause, cause that's one, one knock on some of these, uh, uh, nodes that, that, that come and they come with a bunch of software is that they're not as performant as maybe they should be due to the interacting software on the computer. But it's, from what I've heard, you guys have, have a very performant computer. At least it's the way Keith was describing it to me. Yeah. Um, how, how do you prioritize performance? Like what uh, hardware is necessary to make this possible? Um, again, like to have your own server, you said people visualize, huge server racks how yeah. how can how can an embassy computer um provide the utility that people allocate to to web servers uh in your physical home well we have a philosophy as a company um and i'll explain why uh but it is keep it boring stupid on the hardware side of things we are not interested at this time in innovating in hardware Hardware does not need our innovation. There are plenty of off-the-shelf commodity hardware components that are fully capable of running uh, a personal server for an individual. Um, the most prominent, which is the most widely used base component of our entire industry, all the Bitcoin nodes, is the Raspberry Pi 4, um, which is what we use. So the base of our computer is a Raspberry Pi 4, 4 gigabyte, um, and that is... Uh, remarkably, uh, at a $55 price tag um, for retail, a very powerful computer. The Raspberry Pi 4 is, is powerful, it's reliable, um, it's extremely well uh, designed, and it's the best of breed for the price point by far. And um, it has proven through other products like MyNode, which runs a ton of services, um, and our own, which has an increasing uh, offering, but uh, more, more prominently outside of Bitcoin more and more, um, that these things run fine on this, that you can run many of these services in, in parallel at the same time, and the Pi can handle it uh, very gracefully. Um, our biggest bottleneck right now is actually disk I.O., uh, read and write speeds to persistent storage, right? So the, the actual micro SD cards or an external hard drive. That is where the, the slowness uh, is really being felt, especially during the initial block download for Bitcoin. Uh, our node takes just over a week uh, on average for people to sync from Genesis, um, which is, you know, fine. It gets the job done. It requires some patience, but, you know, it should take less. Um, and we have ways of improving that. But the reason we want to keep our hardware so boring, um, so our full hardware spec is as follows. We have the Raspberry Pi 4 as the base. We use 128 gigabyte high endurance micro SD. Um, it's pretty fast and it will last a long time but it's not a terabyte solid state drive, right? Um, we have a speaker that needs to be hooked up to the GPIO pins of the Pi because that is how we provide feedback to the user. Just like when you turn on your laptop computer, it makes a little noise and tells you when it's ready. Uh, because this thing doesn't have a screen or lights or anything like that, like audio is how we communicate to the user whether this thing is online, whether it's doing some sort of update. Like, um, That's interesting. I've never, I've never heard of that before. It's very fascinating. Well, otherwise you're, you're looking at, you got to, you have to pull up some interface on your computer or look at logs or something like that to see when it's ready. Um, our device and product in total is designed to be used by people who have never heard of the word command line, who don't know anything, right? This is a, this is a consumer mass market product. Um, and so if we even say the word command line, it's over, it's over. Nobody will do that. Nobody in terms of, uh, you know, uh, if you really want to go mass market. So we needed a feedback mechanism. Uh, so we put a speaker in there and designed a sound library that would interact with our operating system and tell the user what's going on. Uh, if you power it down, it makes like a little, dun, 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 you know, and if you power it up, it's got a little chime and it's very pleasant. Um, so, and then a case. Uh, we, we have a, a case that we do special engraved um, 
you know, it has embassy engraved on it and it has your, your product key, which is actually acts as a one-time password for claiming the device, uh, which, you know, that way the device knows who its master is. There's um, quite a bit of cryptography going on in that step when you claim it. Obviously you don't need to know any of that. It happens under the hood, but um, you know, it's, it uses public private key technology uh, encryption to make sure that you and only you the possessor of a unique password can talk to this device that's in your home. Nobody else can can talk to it. Um, and similar to Bitcoin, if you lose this thing, you know you are you are resetting the device. It's over. All your data is gone uh, if you didn't make backups, which we also offer, of course. Um, but if you didn't make backups and you lose your password, it's gone. There's no way to retrieve it. Um, you know we are not part of the the loop at all. Start Nine has no idea. Um, who owns these devices uh, once they're out the door? Um, who has plugged them in ever? Who? What services you've installed or whether you're using anything at all? Uh, we only know what you tell us. So if you contact support um, you know, and you need help with something, it's like, we're starting from zero. We're like, okay, <laughs> you know, what'd you do? And you know, <laughs> it's hard. Support is hard for us because we have no insight <laughs> into your device. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's gotta be a hard problem to, to solve, but. And it's, I'm happy that you guys are building this and that this is becoming more of a trend because it's imperative, right? Like, and yeah, it's like, like that's like been a long time dream of mine is, and again, you're not just a Bitcoin node, but like a node or self-sovereign server is probably a better way to describe it in every home um, that Uncle Jim uh, takes care of and, and the family can connect to. Yeah. Like, do you think it's possible to change minds and tendencies? Do you think what's going on with all the hacks that have happened, all the data breaches that have happened, you think uh, that is enough of an impetus to push more, uh, more of your average Joe towards this type of, of model? Well, yeah. So this is always a, a fun thought experiment. Um, you know, if you're a if you, if you're a fireman, um, you need fires. <laughs> you you don't have a job uh, if there are no fires. It doesn't mean that you want fires, right? There's this weird middle ground where it's like you recognize that there are fires. And so you set out to solve that problem. Um, but inherently, if the fires went away, there'd be no need for you. Um, we exist because we see a gigantic problem in the world right now, perhaps arguably the biggest problem in on earth right now is potentially security of information and communications channels, privacy data. Um, and we're setting out to solve that problem. Now, um, we don't want people to get hacked. We don't want there to be disastrous consequences for anyone, but there will be. We recognize this as an inevitability um, that has already happened and will continue to happen at increasing scale. And so with each new attack, with each new Netflix documentary that tells people how Facebook is stealing stuff from them, um, our market grows. The awareness of the problem grows as more and more fires are set. Um, and we will be there waiting. We will be um, here for you when you're ready, when you're ready to take back your communications, your data, and your privacy online. Now, there's a lot of people who, most people, I think, if you went and you said, do you want this? They would say yes, but it's inaccessible. They're unaware of any solutions, any viable solutions, practical solutions. Um, and, uh, and there's an assumption that any solutions would be beyond their technical reach. Um, and we will slowly change that perception. Um, so, you know, our mission is twofold. It is uh, our sort of market strategy, I should say. Uh, one is to let the world do our job for us, um, but to be there with educational materials and welcoming arms when those things happen. Uh, and two, to make our product the go-to standard for digital self-sovereignty. And I would argue that at this point in time, and this is crazy for me to say, if you asked me 12 months ago whether I could say something like this and have it be arguable, um, that we are probably the global leader in individual digital self-sovereignty. I am not aware of any other company or product 
that offers the individual a generalized solution for protecting themselves and their data online without trust. That's the key component here is that Apple values your privacy in quotes. <laughs> Google values your privacy. So long as they are the, you know, uh, authoritarian Protector. custodians of that privacy and that you pay them with every ounce of your life and being, then they value your privacy. Um, they value your privacy as a, as a, a product that they sell. Um, we don't want to be people's custodians. Um, we're just selling a product that allows you to be your own custodian and nobody else is doing that. Um, not in the way that we are, not in the generalized user-friendly, grandma-friendly product offering that we are going for. Yeah, and I think this is a good point to really nail down why this is so important at this particular juncture, like why we should be turning away from the protectors of your data and Google and Apple and towards these self-sovereign options. Like what does the future look like in which we keep barreling down this direction of complete centralization of data individual data uh, and we don't move to to take control of our own data in the digital age um the same thing that happened to money uh when we centralized control over that um it gets abused right i'm uh, a big big fan of a widely misunderstood phrase uh, known as absolute power corrupts absolutely um marty i think i just lost you I got you. Um, my computer is doing the thing. So I'm okay. going to restart it and I'll see you in a second. Okay. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. 23.23. That was a lot quicker than I was anticipating. I used, I switched to my oh, phone. You're coming in loud and clear now too. Um, okay. I should have just done this from the start. That was it's stupid. All, it's all good. <laughs> Literally less than a minute. Um, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely is a misunderstood statement. I've never heard that before. Why is that? Um, it's because people think it applies to individuals. People think that that phrase applies to say an individual who is, um, intelligent and ambitious and hardworking and has integrity that if you, if they become powerful, right? That if that individual achieves a degree of absolute power, that they will become corrupt, right? People think it applies to individuals. And so we set out to not empower individuals too much, uh, largely as a misunderstanding of that general misunderstood belief. Um, absolute power, it's not to say that individuals don't become uh, sort of more prone to corruption. If they have power, they absolutely do. But the phrase does not apply absolutely. Integrity is a real thing, right? It is possible for people to accumulate power and maintain their goodness, their integrity. They do not need to become corrupt. It can happen, but it doesn't need to. The phrase applies absolutely 100% of the time to transgenerational systems. Any organization or system that acquires absolute power will invariably corrupt. It has to. And the reason for that is because the turnover of individuals, right? A lot of great systems were built by great people who never became corrupt, but then their children or their children's children or the next elected person, right? Because powerful systems attract the worst people. That's why they corrupt absolutely 100% of the time is because the more powerful an entity is, the worst kind of person it's going to attract because it attracts people who want power, which is a certain type of personality. I can't stop thinking of Apple post Steve Jobs um, when you're describing yeah, that. or all of them. Right. <laughs> Do you think Apple would be what it is today if Steve miraculously survived uh, his illness? Do you think he would have had the uh, mental fortitude to, to be as pure as people envisioned him when he was still alive? couldn't tell you because, you know, I, so I've read the jobs biography by Walter Isaacson, who's my favorite biographer, by the way, the guy is amazing. Um, and I've, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of research because we, you know, in a way like to compare ourselves to early days, Apple, um, in a kind of joking, you know, way, but also hopefully maybe in a true way in certain senses. But, um, 
you know, Steve Jobs, I don't know what a lot of his stances were on like individual uh, politics um, and privacy, right? Privacy rights. Like Steve Jobs was a ruthless and relentless product person um, who, you know, strove for per perfection in his products. I don't actually know because he died before this became like a front and center issue. Uh, and I'm not aware of any bold stances that he took for or against uh, data privacy. Um, you know, I I think you, I could say with confidence that he wouldn't advocate for not privacy, but would he advocate for non-custodial privacy, even at the expense of Apple's, uh, <laughs> you know, bread and butter? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but has it? I'm trying to think of what the bread and butter was. Like was. The bread and butter, the music when he was alive. I'm trying to think of like the app stores as robust. Obviously, he was around when the first iPhone dropped. Um, yeah, but we don't have to focus too much on Steve Jobs. But it is something I think about often. Like, what would he think about Apple today? Considering, uh, like they they say they protect your privacy, but there are instances where it seems like that's just LARPing. Um, I I think you'd be disappointed in the lack of product innovation <laughs> and in the um, continually uh, worsening customer support. Yeah. Um, and probably the lack of focus on developers too, because Apple has very much gotten away from being the uh, catering to developers um, year by year. It gets, it becomes a worse and worse experience. Yeah. Which provides an opportunity. So let's talk about the embassy interface too, because this is like very interesting to me Again, interfacing with your hardware. You can do it via an iPhone or a MacBook if you want to. Uh, this is a really cool concept to me because it allows you to utilize everyday um, digital tools in the form of an iPhone and a laptop to access your self-sovereign server and pull data from that. So we are utilizing um, the internet to uh, attack the internet in a sense, um, which is great. Uh, they built our our highways for us. Um, we use the browser, uh, which is an extremely familiar tool, uh, even for the least technical people. They sort of understand rudimentarily what a browser is and how to use one. And so your embassy uh, is accessible through the browser um, in a completely trustless way using Tor. So when you set up your embassy, which for a completely non-technical person takes less than five minutes to do the initial setup for most people, 10 has been pushing it. And that's usually when they have some kind of like weird router um, that you know makes the initial setup. They have to use the advanced flow as opposed to the basic flow. If you have an old router that doesn't support uh, MDNS, which is like what the protocol that's used to do wireless printing and everything in your home. Um, so once it's set up, then the result of the setup of your embassy is a URL that was created at the time of setup, which is a Tor V3 hidden service, which is actually just a public key, right? When you look at a Tor V3 address, it's a public key dot onion. Uh, so it's the result of a cryptographic process that was um, conducted at the time of setup. And the result of the setup is a URL and instructions on which browsers you can use to shove this URL into. So we say, here's your unique embassy website and go put it in the Tor browser or go put it in Brave browser. And you put that URL into the browser and out pops a website, just like any other website that you would visit, google.com, amazon.com, right? Here out pops a website, except this website <laughs> is your private website that nobody even knows exists, let alone that you are currently talking to it from anywhere in the world, right through a familiar tool called a browser. Everything is end-to-end -end encrypted. Everything is onion routed. And nobody even knows that this URL exists and is completely authenticated to you and you alone, such that even if someone were to get a hold of this onion address, 
not only would they not know it belonged to you, but they would have no way of using it in any meaningful way. They would visit this URL and all they'd see is a sign-in screen, which is give us your password. And they go, okay, <laughs> I don't have a password. Um, and they're out. That's it. That's pretty fascinating. It's unstoppable. And, and the reason that we did this, um, we always knew that we were going to go down this path, but it wasn't how we started. Our original interface was an app. We actually launched an app on iOS and uh, Android that you used to communicate with the embassy in your home over Tor. But all the code, all the, the graphical user interface, the client code was a binary that was hosted on the App Store and Google Play Stores. And you downloaded the code to your phone just like you would any other app. And then you use that app to communicate with your embassy. This is the difference between like visiting facebook.com and using the Facebook mobile app, right? One is accessed through the browser and the other is an, a native app on your phone. We took the native app approach because we weren't quite there with our browser technology that we wanted to leverage. And it was uh, also, we thought it was a nice experience to have this app just on your phone rather than having to launch a browser and then visit a website. However, Apple shut it down. Huh. Apple came in and told us that we could no longer make updates to this app because they had discovered that this app was, they claimed that we were in violation of a particular code in their terms of service that said, your app, this is like if you build a mobile app for iOS, your app is not permitted to download executable code from the internet. And so what they mean by that is like, if I'm using an app on an iPhone, my app cannot download another app onto my iPhone, right? Because Apple wants to be the place where you get apps. They want their app store to be the only place that you can get software for your phone. And we argued with them for weeks. <laughs> we appealed to every level of the company saying, listen, you don't understand our app is not downloading remote executable code to the phone. It is a remote control. Our app is a remote control for a computer in the person's home. And when they download a new service from our marketplace, it's downloading the service to the computer in their home, not to their iPhone. And therefore this doesn't fall under your terms of service. And they had no argument back they just literally regurgitated their previous email, which was, your app is in violation of terms of service, da, da, da. And what it indicated was that they weren't being malicious. Apple was not attacking us. It's that what we were doing was so inherently different than anything that they had ever seen. They didn't bother to make an exception. They didn't bother to refine their rules. It's that we were close enough to doing something they didn't allow that they were just like, no, we're, we're not going to pay special attention to you. Just don't do it anymore. That's... And so we had to completely pivot our model. We were like, okay, so we can no longer have a native app for iOS that allows people to communicate with their embassies. So what are we going to do? We're going to hijack other native apps called browsers and then serve the embassy up as a web page that they can just visit and manage through there. So it took us about a month and a big middle finger to Apple, and we're back to doing exactly what we were doing before, except now we can do it from multiple apps instead yeah. of one. This is the same workaround that Gab had to do, because they wouldn't um, allow Gab in the in the App Store, and I have a feeling that there's like more nefarious intentions behind it, like, hey, we don't have access to that data, so Maybe. we don't want to allow you to, to do this. Um, Maybe. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. We were going in this direction anyway, because this is the unstoppable approach, right? Like our goal as a company is to build technology that cannot be stopped. And the only way that you can build technology that can't be stopped is if there's no central point of failure. Uh, and, a, and a native app for iOS is a central point of failure, but a browser for iOS, like for, for an iPhone owner to not be able to manage their embassy would require Apple to prohibit browsers on their store. Yeah, and even if they, how would they even attempt to identify? They can't. Due to the fact that you have the very unique onion address, password protected, like they don't even know, they can't even guess like what addresses people are going. Like, I guess they could try to block particular addresses, but they would have to know them first, right? 
Well, they could try to block onion addresses. Like Apple could say no Tor browsers are allowed on the store. Right. That seems like a viable thing that could happen. Um, and one that we're prepared for as well. It would be a temporary disruption in that, you know, for a period of time, owners of iPhones would not be able to communicate with their embassy on their iPhone. They could still do it on their desktop um, or on their Android, but um, they would be prohibited from using it on their iPhone because we rely on Tor. We we have built uh, Tor as a part of the base of our infrastructure. It's how all the communications are established. Um, however, it doesn't need to be that way. We can facilitate clearnet communications over SSL, HTTPS. Um, it just requires a bit more sort of setup, right? Like doing clearnet is actually harder than doing Tor, which is odd because people always think of Tor as like the hard thing to do. But the reason clearnet is so easy is the reason email is easy. It's because it's entirely centralized, trusted and custodial and they've just put it on a silver plate for you. But if you want privacy, ClearNet is almost impossible to do because of central DNS, because of the trusted certificate authorities that are out there. Um, but we are already taking steps uh, and have already uh, launched features that enable ClearNet communications by making the embassy itself its own certificate authority and issuing SSL certificates to your phone that you can save to your iPhone or Android device and then communicate with your embassy from anywhere in the world over HTTPS, uh, encrypted end-to-end, -end, and not trusting anyone except your ISPs, right? The the people who are relaying the internet traffic itself. But it is, you know, they don't have your information. They could just cut the cord, which is pretty drastic. Good, right? It's a step in the right direction. Yeah, and that would be the cutting of the cord would be a very drastic move by these ISPs. Correct. And so we're we're in good shape here from a um, from a up you know censorship resistant and privacy standpoint, um, and we will continue to make that more robust and featureful. But as of today, it, it works pretty well. Um, works really well. So, what's your long term thesis? What does this look like at scale? How does it change the dynamic of our interaction with the web and with data? Probably is a better way to put it. And how does that change yeah. human tendencies in your belief? The, the overarching thesis that we have is that anything that can be done in a centralized, trusted manner, we're talking about online, right? Anything that can be done in a centralized, trusted manner um, that is custodial and paid for um, in this sort of cloud-based monetary model that most of Silicon Valley has uh, been humping for two decades. Um, all of that can be done in a self-hosted, non-custodial, decentralized, peer-to-peer -peer manner. Everything. There is no limitation to that statement. And that a lot of those alternatives already exist, right? There's the two ways of approaching a novel kind of future. One is the if you build it, they will come approach, right? This is if you're building a platform. So I build something and because there's this new technology and platform, all the creators are going to come and build useful tools on this platform that consumers can use. And the other approach is the recognition that many of these tools already exist, but that there, there is no distribution medium, uh, no outlet for them. And we very firmly fall into the latter, which is that people have been saying for decades that open source software is going to eat the world. And so far, it's the closed source custodial software that has eaten the world. Uh, it's, it's, it has a hegemony right now. Uh, open source software might be uh, used in those components of those closed source things, but the vast majority of uh, software that people use uh, day to day in this world is, is proprietary uh, and custodial. And the reason that open source software has not fulfilled its destiny is because it didn't have an outlet. It didn't have a distribution mechanism, right? The, the best distribution mechanism prior to, to us, I would argue, was uh, readme's in GitHub. Is If you want to run open source software, you go to the uh, source code and you follow the readme instructions uh, to get it running on your own server, which you also had to set up beforehand. And if you don't want to do it physically, because that's hard because you have to do port forwarding and static IPs through your ISP, 
then you know, go ahead and get one on DigitalOcean. Uh, and by then, the person who you were talking to has already left the room. And even with DigitalOcean, they have no idea how to do a VPS. So it's game over. There was no way for a non-technical individual or even most technical individuals to really build their digital life around open source non-custodial software. It just was infeasible. And that is the problem that we're setting out to solve is we're trying to make running self-hosted open source software feasible for grandma. And that is a very lofty goal if you understand the difficulties involved in that. Mm -hmm. um, and so we think this is the future. We think that if we don't do it or if multiple companies do it, and of course there will be groups and nonprofits and companies that all go after this goal, but we, we think it's the future. And we really hope it is because if it's not, we're in deep shit. So, you know, maybe there's some, some wishful thinking there that this is the, the future, um, but we really believe that it is. We think the incentives uh, are aligned and that the problems with the current model are bad enough that it will just fall apart uh, year by year. It'll just worsen and worsen and worsen. Um, and so at scale, what this means, if you start incorporating um, some of these really cool new technologies uh, around IoT, uh, virtual reality, um, robots, these devices, right? Smart homes. Um, that's where it goes. This is the like kind of aha, we really need this for our future moment because if you start putting smart devices around your home, refrigerators and cameras and, you know, vacuum cleaners and your car and everything is going to be connected to the internet, right? The internet of things is just in its infancy. Um, you know, everything will be smart. Everything will be connected. And we have two possible futures. One is where everything is connected to Google Cloud <laughs> and literally the lights in your home can be turned off, your doors can be unlocked, your temperature can be changed by any uh, employee with sufficient authority at those companies or by a hack, right? It's no longer just your data sitting in the cloud. It's speakers sitting in your home. It's locks protecting your doors that are now subject to hacks Things that are now subject to incompetence. The one that scares me the most is the cars. Because we saw it with Michael Hastings. <laughs> like they got into the car and they could just literally run you into a wall. It scares the shit out of me. Yeah. Well, there was an accident in the software, right? Like we are barreling towards a future where you are physically unsafe. Not just your data might get hacked and somebody might get your phone number, but we're dealing with the locks on your doors and the car that you drive 70 miles an hour down the road. And so we have two, the other, the alternative is that all of these internet connected devices, these robots are, are coordinating with each other on a private cloud that you and you alone control, that I can put a camera in my home and the video footage from that camera is being fed to a server that is also in my home or maybe in my, my you know, parents' house in another state or something like that if I want some geographic redundancy and then backed up. And then I can watch the video footage in my home from my phone on the other side of the world over an end-to-end -end encrypted line that's onion routed around the world in real time without anyone on earth even knowing that the camera exists, let alone that it's on, let alone that I'm watching what's happening. This is and that is the kind of future that we are enabling. Thank you. That's desperately what I need. My wife and I, we don't have any, we don't have any <laughs> monitors for for our son because they're all connect to Wi-Fi and they just don't feel safe. <laughs> yes. So sleep in the room next to yes, them and just listen. Is... Oh no, that is most people's red line. But from our conversations and just my observations, um, most people's line is not Google is reading my emails. It's Alexa is listening. Those, that is the red line for people. But we want smart speakers. We want home cameras. I'm not willing to sacrifice these wonderfully empowering technologies. Um, and so we need an alternative means of running them. And right now, there is no company or organization on earth that I am aware of that is building infrastructure and technology that enables uh, a, a sort of personal robot fleet. Um, I'm not saying that we are gonna start selling robots. We absolutely have plans to launch a camera, a home security camera as our second I product that. that will automatically link up to the embassy and do the video feed. 
all of it over tour and without trust. That is on our roadmap, but we're not going to start building refrigerators, right? We are trying to build an operating system that enables device manufacturers to build devices, smart devices that run embassy OS uh, for self-sovereign computing. Um, so in a way, we're more like Microsoft than Apple, which is that our real product offering, the real thing that we are innovating and building is an operating system. It's embassy OS, uh, which goes back to why I said, keep the hardware boring, which is like, we don't want to be <laughs> hardware manufacturers. We are building uh, base layer operating system technology that can be run on any hardware device uh, for the purpose of non-custodial self-sovereign computing. Yeah, and that's actually what I was just going to say, like the Raspberry 4, love the Raspberry 4 and your price point right now, $269 is very affordable for, for a lot of people, especially if they're looking to protect their data. That's a price I'm assuming many of those types of people would be willing to pay, but I'd be, I'd be willing to pay more. Like I'd be willing to buy like a $1,500 computer, have it very, very performant and dedicated to embassy OS yeah. alone. Yeah. We, we're going to come out with a beefier device um, for, you know, the pro we'll call it, right? Something really heavy, solid straight, you know, two terabyte drives and huge amounts of RAM. And that way you'll be able to do all the things you want, but it's, um, it's also going to be a, um, a sort of uh, enhanced operating system. Um, we're currently calling this future product, the embassy home. Um, and so it'll, it'll be an Alexa and Google home competitor. Um, as in it will sort of be the, the hub of your smart home. It'll have multiple user management such that every member of your family can actually create their own account on this thing. Um, and parental controls can control what uh, services uh, the kids are allowed to install and run. And families can now have, you know, conversations with each other in a group chat or phone calls or, you know, home video monitoring that never leaves the family. Um, we're working with a what happens in the family stays in the family kind of slogan. Um, you know, protect your home, protect your family. Uh, but without sacrificing this cool new technology called smart home speakers and uh, IoT devices. Right. This is massive. Like I mentioned, this is like, like something I've been waiting for. Like I got We don't have any video security at our house. We don't have any monitors because we don't have Alexa or Google Home. Um, and yeah. this is something that is severely needed at the market. And yeah, and, and that's the other thing too. Like if you can just start a new generation of kids, like I'm thinking of my son alone, like maybe he'll be onboarded onto this by the time he's six or seven interacting with apps or something. Maybe that's a little too early, but whatever. Uh, just sort of re-architecting the user experience and getting young people at a very young age just used to this type of interaction with their data and so it may may take a generation but if you put the hard work in and bring yeah. these products to market i could easily see user tendencies shifting towards a self-sovereign model um within the next 20 30 years yeah it has to be convenient um you know there's very little tolerance for things that are hard, things that don't work, things that are slow. Um, and so our goal, which we will never reach, by the way, but we can get really close asymptotically, we can get damn close to this line, is to reach parity with centralized systems from a user experience standpoint, right? We can never quite get there because of the, <laughs> the inherent kind of do-it-yourself that's required. But if we can take the do-it-yourself um, effort level and bring it down to near zero, right, um, then our market grows and grows and grows because our hypothesis is that if you go to almost anyone who uses a computer, almost anyone, and you say, on my left hand, I have email you know, that is totally custodial, bots are reading it, it's stored in the cloud, it's subject to being hacked, et cetera, et cetera, and it, it takes a swipe of your finger to run. And in my right hand, I have email that's completely self-sovereign, not in the cloud, yet the data is stored redundantly around the world, encrypted, nothing can happen, it can't be hacked, it's totally under your control, um, and it takes two swipes of the finger. Um, we think everyone goes for the latter. So uh, our, but, but if it's four swipes of the finger, it's over. You can't yeah. get there. Well, you can for the, for the hobbyists. You can for the Bitcoin people. 
which is also why we started, by the way. It's why Bitcoin was the first service we offered on our marketplace, uh, is because we saw the Bitcoin and greater Bitcoin community. When I say greater Bitcoin community, I'm talking about you know the the people who understand why Bitcoin is important, um, even if they don't fully understand Bitcoin. Uh, so we're talking about sort of libertarians and anarchists and Bitcoiners and the people who really believe in and stand for individual liberty and privacy rights. And um, we targeted that group as our initial customer base, one, because we are members of that group, and two, because we knew that they would get it faster than the rest of the population, that they would use it faster, that they would be willing to tolerate some inconvenience and expense in terms of time effort, um, and that when push came to shove as we expand into other markets, they would be at our back like the crazy cousin ready to jump into a fight on your behalf, yeah. right? Like we, we, we need fighters. We need people who understand what we're doing and are willing to argue for it online, who are willing to tell their friends, who are willing to um, push it because without recognition, without awareness of our product, we're just five devs sitting in a room building useless shit. So... <laughs> Well, yeah, Matt O'Dell ready to stab somebody for the for the cause in the background is American Hoddle. Yeah, Huddle, man. That's, I've, uh, yeah. American Hoddle, I think, really likes our stuff. He's been in our chat. He's been online. Um, so we're one by one. We're, we're gathering the, the, you know, the people we need to, to help us. And that's why I'm on this podcast right now. I appreciate the stances that I've seen you take online. You're very consistent. Um, you know, you're definitely part of our, our sort of ideological circle and i wanted to get to know you more and and have your audience get to know us a little bit too. Oh, well thank you for for pinging me and reaching out i can't wait to get my hands on an embassy and like i said this is the type of product suite i want to interact with moving forward especially with my family um like i don't like the, the nest getting hacked and people being able to change temperature and talk to children in a room is just like <laughs> one of the creepiest things it's, it's so weird yeah and um it's uh so thank you for for working on this i mean it's imperative moving forward it's said on this podcast many times we either get the chinese surveillance state exported to the rest of the world or we fight for these self-sovereign technologies and you guys are on the front lines and i'm very excited to see what you guys continue to push out and i will be let me know when the camera's ready i'll be first in line <laughs> The, ca the camera is um, a really important uh, project of mine um, and of the teams. But, you know, as we expand into more upscale embassies, um, you know, more powerful embassies, uh, and as we continue to build out, again, our real value proposition, which is the operating system, which we have a roadmap to last us at least a year right now of things we want to do there, and we move fast. So a year for us is, is a very long time. Um, and now you start talking about cameras and we need help. Um, you know, we, we are five people are part of this company. Uh, we're all devs. We have nobody, uh, I I'm sort of all the other departments combined <laughs> and I try to keep the four of them coding, um, because that's what, that's what they do best and they're best in class. And, um, but we need help. Uh, we are hiring. We are looking to, um, bring on more devs. Uh, and we're also looking for, assistance in other departments. Um, but we're also not quite there from a, uh, you know, uh, corporate development and financial position to be doing all those hires right now. So it's very chicken and egg. We have a huge roadmap, a lot of things we want to accomplish. We have the talent to accomplish them. Um, and we're, you know, fighting day by day to make sure that we can keep doing it. So, uh, the best way that anyone in the world right now can contribute to our mission is to spread the word. Uh, to put together tutorials or instructionals for different aspects of our technology so that it's even more accessible to non-technical people. And lastly, and most importantly, to buy an embassy or to buy Embassy OS when we begin offering it in a few days as a standalone operating system so that you can install it on your own Raspberry Pi, which is coming in a few days, um, is to, to buy our products. If you like what we're doing, buy a product and we can keep doing it. Well, I'm going to purchase mine today. And uh, I think... Hell Get yeah. on it, freaks. Any way you can help out. I'm um, excited to see this product develop and, and where you guys take it from here. Um, again, feel free to reach out if you need any help. And thank you for your time. 
I'm bummed we only have a tight hour here, but we'll do this again at some point in the future and we can expand on some of the topics we touched on today. Yeah, we covered a lot yeah. of ground. We can get we can get cosmic in <laughs> the future. We'll talk more about the imperative nature yeah. of of self sovereign data to avoid the global panopticon. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been fun. Thanks for having me on, man. I, I appreciate it. Um, appreciate that you were so responsive when I reached out to you. It was awesome. no, I mean, I'm picking up what you're putting down, so I'm happy that you reached out. Where can we find out more about you personally? Is just uh, startups start nines twitter or yeah um start nine labs is our twitter handle uh start nine labs.com is our main website um i'm matt hill so underscore matt hill underscore (laughs) flanked by two underscores um but yeah um the rest of the team is uh, keegan mcclelland aiden mcclelland aaron greenspan those are the four founders so it's me, Aaron, the McClelland brothers uh, are the four founders. And then we've recently hired Lucy Cifarello as another dev. Um, and we're all online. You can find us through uh, through Twitter and we're here. We'll reach out. We're extremely responsive. We have a Telegram chat that we basically live in 24-7 uh, where people talk and ask questions. Um and we are extremely accessible team, all five of us. Yeah, we will add all these links to the show notes. Matt, thank you for your time. Thank you for building what you're building. We're going to try and get the word out here. Um, and I'm very excited that you're working on this. And I think it's very important as we move into the future. So I hope you enjoy your birthday. Um, thank you for taking some time to speak with me on this very special day for you. Um, and uh, yeah, keep crushing it, dude. All right. Nice meeting you, my man. We'll talk soon. Peace and love, freaks.